You are listening to the highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Noah Wilson-Rich, PhD, co-founder and CEO of The Best Bees Company. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I was originally drawn to bees because they're social creatures. And as humans, I always wanted to know about ourselves and how we can be our healthiest selves in our healthiest society bees and wasps. And all of these organisms have been around for so long. Bees especially have been around for 100 million years. I really wanted to continue my work in graduate school so that I could better understand how a beneficial organism like these pollinators and bees stay healthy and what lessons we as humans could learn from them. I knew the work that I was doing into bee health and how to save the bees and what lessons we can learn. I knew that was more important than ever. And so I started to think outside the box and and I started a Facebook page at the time um, when I was getting ready to graduate. I called it Best Bees. I said, we're selling beehives and I'll volunteer my time to manage them in exchange for research funding. Does anybody want some bees? I thought it was quite silly at the time. You know, I was picking up teaching courses in biology and animal behavior and evolution. I was bartending at a business school at the time. And I, I just said, you know, I have nothing to lose. Let me try to find this way to get more beehives out there so those can be my research specimens. And and that's also a way to get a crowdsourced funding model in place to fund this research. We've got one of the largest data sets of bee health that exists in the world using standardized beekeeping practices, and we're off to the races. There are 20,000 or so species of bees out there, and this is just 10% of the pollinator species. So for humans studying the health of pollinators, it's nearly impossible to study all 20,000 species of bees at once due to limitations in funding and bandwidth. So instead, what we tend to do is we focus on one indicator species or a model system, and honeybees are really the gold standard for that, for understanding bee health and pollinator systems, because humans have been working with honeybees for so long, you know, over 10,000 years. We see evidence from cave art, and that existed about 15,000 years ago. We have this very deep history between humans and honeybees, with honeybees as an indicator species for the health of bees overall, for how we can stabilize our food systems in the face of pollinator decline. It's really interesting where we can look at a network of honeybee hives that are connected. So our 100 beekeepers at scale across the United States are entering data in a smartphone app that we write the code for, and that's building community in a way that's connected to science because these beehives are at people's home gardens. And so one of the projects that we've been able to innovate upon that network of beehives is called Honey DNA. And that's when we look at samples of honey and we're looking at the plant DNA genome within the honey. It's a bit of a forensic science approach. And so, for example, in Portland, Oregon, we see that a lot of honey is from roses. And so by understanding the identity of the honey and revealing the true plant origin, it really helps Portlandians understand we are the city of roses. But now also this rose honey, it's not only contributing to science, but it's helping us taste our own landscape in ways that we're doing at scale. We think about protecting pollinators and bees in two ways. One is with foraging habitat and the others with nesting habitat. And so foraging habitat, that's the flowers and nesting habitat, that's the houses. So with foraging, let's start there. 
with honey DNA, we're starting to get a very specific list of plants that bees are pollinating. Now, yes, we get this information from honeybees in no small part because they produce honey that gives us the research specimen to then look and do a deep dive into all the plant DNA to do the genomics analysis within the honey to reveal what are all the plants that the bees are going to. Now, once we have that list, we now know all of the plants that we can go visit. We can promote those. We can plant more of those. We can protect and preserve those plants. Once we've started to plant more of those, you then go and find those plants and you can either sit by it for let's say 10 minutes a day with a pen and paper and a folding chair and you just count how many bees you saw visit it. And you can report that online so that collectively around the world, it's community reported data for tracking pollinators. Now, what we're doing next is collecting those plants and we run another genomics test on it. But instead of looking at the plant DNA, this time we're looking at the pollinator DNA. So again, a forensics approach, but we want to measure how many different species of pollinators have visited that particular type of plant. This is gonna be an entirely new scientific approach for discovering those pollinators that we don't see every day, but we know are out there. We'll get a list of those animals. And then the next step is understanding their nesting habitat and how we can plant more flowers and then understand which species are visiting them. We then wanna see where those species live so we can make sure that there are homes for them. People are reimagining cities and they're rethinking, what are we doing with our rooftops? What was there before this building went up? People are starting to understand that this gray to green movement, it's a trend that's here to stay. Green is not just an amenity anymore, it's a new mandate. So for Best Bees, we've been linking all of our home garden and, and business rooftops to this network with a data yielding beehive. We can listen to the bees and understand what plants to promote more, maybe on vacant rooftops, maybe in abandoned plots of land that um, we can work with the government and say, hey, let's plant something here. Maybe even in city trees, where if a tree has to come down, legislators can say, oh, why don't we put pollinator-friendly uh, plants here so that we're feeding the bees more? And in doing so, this is a way to measure biodiversity in action at a community-driven approach by listening to the bees. And over time, it's going to be very possible to then start to see a measurable increase in biodiversity from the plants. One more thing that I'll add on this topic is in areas of natural disasters, where really a large impact of climate change is focusing on greater intense, greater intensity of storms. We used Hurricane Maria as a case study where we tested honey DNA before and after the storm. And we found that native plants bounced back soonest and fastest compared to invasive species. And that's something that can really inform and empower a local community so that if we plant more native plants, we can increase our resilience against these negative impacts of climate change so that we have more plants in place to bounce back sooner. It is possible to change our entire food production system. It is necessary to do so. And 
while improving the human condition. We can do all of these at the same time and have a lot of fun in doing so by bringing in designers as well as architects. For example, when we sent bees into suborbital space on a rocket ship to really better understand the stressors of these social organisms and these bees, we were thinking about how do we replicate our hometowns in a foreign environment? What happens in a climate catastrophe when things are wiped out? What information do we have for how to recreate what was lost? And so with old samples of honey, we're able to recreate old gardens. We have to understand that the human population is growing so fast these days, and yet our available land is not. And so we must be more creative about how we use it. We live in a built environment, and that means we are the creators of our own solutions, and we understand our problems. I was born in Manhattan, and I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. I would also spend a lot of time in New York City, and my cousin Joshua went to a school that had a rooftop playground, and I would visit and play up there, and it was amazing to see this huge fence. I'm sure it's not as large now that I'm an adult, but as a kid, this fence was so large and it would catch any stray balls, like, you know, kickball, so it wouldn't fly off the tall rooftop. I remembered looking out onto all the other rooftops in New York City and think, do those kids have better playgrounds? How tall are those fences? Do they have swing sets? What do those look like? And as an adult, I, my disappointment I mean, will never leave for understanding that not only do those rooftops not have better playgrounds, but they have nothing. And I have to say nothing angers nor inspires me more than to look out over any city and see nothing on the rooftops because we know this will change. We know it's open habitat and all that we have to do is plant something. We see that bees are really an ultimately bipartisan issue because it comes down to food for our next generation. It's something that everybody connects with across the political spectrum. So I'm hopeful, even though I'm scared, I am resentful when people dismiss the ideas of growing carrots on an apartment building rooftop, because I know they don't mean that. I think it's easier to say no than it is to say yes at times, especially in times of fear, especially in times of limited resources. But here's the trick. There are so many resources right under our noses. We just haven't noticed them yet. Chapter four of the Bee and Natural History really is a great deep dive into the religious and spiritual and cultural relevance of bees, all the way from patron saints and Christianity relating to bees, such as St. Valentine and St. Patrick, to stories from the Quran, where there's a deep history with honey. And even today, for those in Iran and Persia, as a scientist, I can't wait to be able to test some of those to find the plant DNA in them to help add vocabulary words to the flavors that we're tasting. I think that's such a wonderful way that science can add value to the human experience already, where there's such a long shared history with honey. You know, one thing that has guided me throughout my life is the scientific method, and it's something that every science class starts with. But as an adult, as a professional, as a scientist, as a CEO, this informs my life perspective because it gives me a method of inquiry, a way to ask questions. So for any kids out there, my advice is always to ask questions. It's so important that we feel comfortable and confident in ourselves to say, well, what is that? Why is that? What's happening? 
but even to go a step back to process what we're feeling and thinking. Anytime somebody's been picked on as a kid for knowing too much about something, whatever makes a kid a nerd or a, you know stand out too much, it's because they know a little bit too much about something. Maybe they're standing out for the way they look, for an interest that they have, but as an adult to stand out, that's what makes you special. That's what gives you a role in society. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.